This is an ABC podcast. If you could take a simple saliva test to find out if you're at risk of cancer or heart disease, would you do it? Or would you prefer not to know? Because there's free testing available now and researchers are looking for young Australians to get on board. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Soon we're going to be talking preventative DNA screening. Is this the way of the future and how do you feel about it? Also, coming up, the holiday nightmare for hundreds of Aussies trapped in Bali. Why can't they get home? First, though. Hack. I don't really think it'll make that much difference to us because they're all politicians. They're just going to do what they want to do. On Triple J. Yeah, did you hear? We've got a new world leader. Britain has found a replacement for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, what? He resigned ages ago. What's taken so long? Well, Britain's system of finding a leader is a bit different to ours. It drags, obviously. But now Liz Truss has been chosen to lead the Conservative Party and to be Britain's 56th Prime Minister. You might not know much about her, like I didn't until just recently. So let's find out a bit more. With us is Anna Pikett. Anna is a journal, a proud Brit, but she also works here in Oz now with the ABC. G'day, Anna. Thanks for coming on. Hack. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I want to know. Boris Johnson resigned back in July. What's taken so long? Well, this followed months of scandals. So they involved a number of fairly senior Tories breaking their own COVID lockdown rules. There was also the matter of Boris appointing a party whips. That's a person who manages conservative votes in Parliament who've been accused of sexually inappropriate behaviour, which he may or may not have known before giving him the job. Add in a few rows over expenses. The list kind of goes on. But eventually Boris gave in to pressure and stood down. So eight MPs initially got enough nominations from colleagues to enter the race to become the leader of the Conservative Party. This sparked the most diverse leadership race in British political history, actually. It was strikingly multicultural. Of those originally in contention, half were from ethnic minority backgrounds and half were women. But why did it take so long? Every round of voting eliminated one candidate with the least support until only two remained. So that was Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Worth noting, only Conservative Party members are allowed to choose the leader. So they're said to be around 200,000-ish of them. They make up a very small proportion of the British population, 0.3%. So there's around 70 million people in the UK. And roughly 200,000 got to choose who will be the next Prime Minister. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I'm sure there were people who were not too impressed with that whole system. But hey, that's the way it works in Britain. What do we know about Liz Truss? So she was the front runner from fairly early on. She's 47 years old. She's now the third female British prime minister and the fourth Tory leader in about six years. So the Brits are up there with the Aussies and the Italians when it comes to swapping leaders. She's got two daughters called Liberty and Francis. She went to a very prestigious university. She went to Oxford. She voted to remain in the EU in the Brexit referendum. However, the year after the UK voted to leave, she told the BBC she changed her mind on Brexit. So since entering Parliament in 2010, she climbed up the ladder fairly quickly. She's held a number of cabinet positions under three prime ministers, but she's no stranger to gaffes, Dave. So in 2014, she infamously declared the UK imports two thirds of its cheese. X-Factor pause. And that is a disgrace. 
which is my personal favorite soundbite. She also <laughs> supported the socially progressive Liberal Democrat Party when she was younger, when she was at uni. She spoke very passionately in favor of abolishing the monarchy in the 90s. And it's quite likely the Queen will know that. So it's going to be quite interesting later on today when she goes to the Queen, who actually swears her in as Prime Minister, because I'm pretty sure she'll know that she was calling for her to get the chop quite a long time ago. Oh my gosh, how awkward. And like just the that Brexit thing as well, like serious convert was against it. And now just the biggest supporter of Brexit saying, I love it. It's so great. Let's, uh, let's you know, carry this process out. Yeah, I'm not sure like how good a look flip-flopping is, but hey, <laughs> there you go. Hasn't worked too well for a lot of other leaders in the past. But was she a supporter of Boris Johnson or was she one of the ones that was calling for him to go? Because there were people in his own team that were saying for a while, you need to get out of here. Yeah, so she actually remained loyal to Boris Johnson during the darkest days, and there were quite a lot of them of his leadership. Um, They were such good friends. She paid tribute to him in her first speech. She said, I want to thank our outgoing leader, my friend Boris. Boris, you got Brexit done. You crushed Jeremy Corbyn, who was the former Labour leader. You rolled out the vaccine and you stood up to Vladimir Putin. Um, So you're admired from Kiev to Carlisle. So it's safe to say that her and Boris are probably still on fairly good terms. Right. I mean, the situation she's inherited isn't really a good one, though, is it? Like, what's what's it like in Britain at the moment? It seems, from an external point of view, a bit of a mess. Yeah, I heard quite a funny analogy earlier. It's like taking over a football team that's doing really, really badly halfway through the season and being kind of tasked with sorting it out. She's definitely got her work cut out for her. The UK is dealing with the worst cost of living crisis in 50 years. You've got the ongoing war in Europe, a very prickly relationship with the EU post-Brexit. And then there's the matter of divisions within the Conservative Party itself. So the public's very sceptical about the government's ability to solve any of these issues. Actually, many have said to have switched to Labour in the polls since December of last year. So um, it's going to be a delicate balancing act in the run-up to the next general election, I'd say. Yeah, I can imagine. Has Liz Truss said anything about her plans for the future? Like, I know she's only been in the job for a very short amount of time, but has she given any (laughs) indication of what's going to be a priority? So I think, first of all, she's going to be sorting out her cabinet. So there's going to be a reshuffle over the next few days. I do think we're probably going to hear some policy announcement fairly soon. So there's a lot of unease in the UK, as I said, with the cost of living crisis. She's promised to make a major announcement on energy bills this week. So it's, I imagine she'll probably do that before she's pushed on it by the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, in the House of Commons when she has her first prime minister questions. Um, some on the greener side of the Tory party are quite worried about her priorities when it comes to climate change. One of her few direct policies on the cost of living would be to suspend green levies on energy bills. She opposes onshore wind and describes seeing solar farms on farmland as one of the most depressing sites of modern Britain. Um, But I'd say first and foremost, she's probably going to want to rebuild some trust in her party off the back of all these scandals as well. So she really, really has a lot on her plate. And what about Boris? People are going to be wondering about him. What's next for Boris Johnson? Well, he's spoken this evening outside number 10 Downing Street in his usual fairly flowery way. Um, He compared himself to a space rocket, Dave, that's landed back on Earth. Now he's handing over the baton to Liz Truss. So I quote, he says, let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that's fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down 
invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. I don't think Boris Johnson could be invisible if he tried. Um, but in short, he hasn't given too much away. However, he did pledge his full support to Liz Truss. He said it was his government that got Brexit done and delivered the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe. He's thanked his voters for giving him the chance to serve the nation. He also gave a special mention to his dog Dylan and Larry the Downing Street <laughs> cat, who is somewhat of a celebrity in the UK. Okay, right. Well, uh, we need to be getting on board with this following, I think. I don't, I don't know. I just don't see Boris Johnson sinking into the corner somewhere and just not mentioning or commenting on any of the politics unfolding in the UK. But who knows? Just quickly, Anna, does all this political chaos back home make you miss home? Absolutely not. I'll be honest, <laughs> Brexit's one of the reasons I moved to Australia and goodness me was I disappointed when I realised that you guys love talking about it as well. And so <laughs> I thought, well, where can I go to put as much space between myself and talking about Brexit and UK politics? I think maybe I'd have to go to the moon to do that. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty pretty in demand here as well. At least we've got a Brexit reporter now on Hack. Um, ABC <laughs> reporter, tea lover, proud Brit, Anna Pikett, thanks for filling us in. You're so welcome. Hack. I'm sitting in Bali Airport at the moment and we've been waiting about five hours, six hours all up for our flight, but that's nothing compared to some Australians who have been waiting three days to get on a flight back to Australia. On Triple Jack. Honestly, there's nothing like a trip to Bali, is there? Give you a chance to unwind, disconnect, ground yourself. You know, there really are so many grounded Australians in Bali right now. About 4,000 people have been stranded over there over the past week because of flight cancellations. You've probably seen a bit about this popping off on social media. Jetstar's blaming a few things for the cancelled flights, lightning strikes, even birds. Maybe you've been caught up in this or other flight chaos recently. I'm keen to hear from you. Call in 1300 you can message in as well, 0439757555. In a minute, you're going to hear how long all of this disruption's set to last. But first, here's Ellie Grounds. There's literally thousands of people talking about it. It's like word on the street. Even the Balinese are asking us about it. This is Hannah. She's from Nam, Melbourne, but right now she's in Bali. And what she's talking about, what she says every Australian in Bali is talking about at the moment, isn't some hot new restaurant or beautiful beach to go to. It's this. Jetstar has cancelled a raft of overseas flights, leaving thousands of Aussie travellers stranded in holiday hotspots like Bali. Hannah is one of those travellers. She says she got an email 24 hours before her flight, saying it had been cancelled because of engineering problems. But she wasn't entirely surprised. Four people I knew, their flights had been cancelled and I was kind of waiting for my flight to be cancelled. As bad as that sounds, um, a few of my friends' flights had been cancelled whilst they've been in the airport. There have been reports of people getting multiple flights canned in a row. Or even if they are put on another one, it not being for days. Hannah decided she didn't want to risk it. So she's forked out more than a thousand bucks to get home with two different airlines at the end of this week. Coming back to Melbourne via Brisbane, it's going to take me about, I think about 20 hours to come home in total, rather than the quick five that I had originally planned. And basically it's been a nightmare. She says because she made that decision, Jetstar won't reimburse her. Because I'm not rebooking with Jetstar, they're not compensating me for accommodation or meals. 
they're not giving me anything basically and the accommodation here is very much not hard, easy to find because there's like thousands of us trying to find accommodation. Luckily I have a friend who I can stay with but if I didn't have him right now I would be um, yeah, I'd be stuck. And she's worried her travel insurance won't cover her either. They've told me that um, the airline should be looking after their passengers if the fault is to do with something in their control, like an engineering or plane problem. So the people in my situation who have chosen not to go back with them, it's sounding like my insurance company won't compensate me. And I've got comprehensive travel insurance. So I'm just like, I can't even do it this right now. I'm going to do it when I go home. And those reports I mentioned earlier about all the other people who say they've been stranded in Bali, well, a lot of those stories have been told by Carly. I'm Carly Douglas. I'm a journalist at NCA Newswire. Um, I work, live and work in Melbourne. Um, and I was one of the lucky people to board uh, the flight back on Sunday from Bali to Melbourne. Carly says in the grand scheme of things, she and her friends got off pretty lightly. Their flight home was delayed around seven hours. While she was waiting at Denpasar Airport on Sunday, she started doing what journalists do best and talked to strangers. Random people around the airport, they were absolutely fed up. One woman um, had actually sadly had her grandpa died two days before and she had been trying to get a flight home and could not get a flight whatsoever. Another person said they had, there were 60 people on their trip and out of those, those 60 people, there were almost 20 of them who had struggled to get home at all for about a week. So some people had to fly to Kuala Lumpur, to Brisbane. Carly reckons if an airline is short-staffed or there are legitimate engineering concerns, it's understandable a flight could be delayed or cancelled. Shit happens. But she reckons the communication needs to be way better. If you knew that flights, you know, two or three days before were delayed or cancelled, then why were you not able to notify us earlier about the delay and to send through notifications throughout the day? There were people that were sitting at the airport lying on the ground for six hours with their kids, you know, like these three-year-old kids lying on the floor. And for people like Hannah, who is still stuck overseas, the effects have gone far beyond a boring day waiting around at an airport. My wife has had to be put on hold because of this debacle. My work's been impacted. Um, I'm going to be spending, you know, 24 hours travelling instead of the five hours. So health as well. Like, I have a script that I need to take and I'm pretty much out of that right now. So I, I can't get that over here. Um, and also mental health, it's really stressful. Hack on Triple J. Ellie grounds with that story and yeah, in a statement, Jets are told Hack they apologise for the frustration and inconvenience. They said that their Boeing 787 fleet had been impacted by a number of issues, including a lightning strike, a bird strike, damage from an item on the runway and delays sourcing a specific spare part for one of their aircraft. And Jetstar says the majority of impacted passengers have now been reaccommodated. They've also offered a flight credit or refund to passengers who no longer wish to travel and accommodation and meal vouchers for those who need it. Seems like so much disruption though for a lot of people who are still waiting to get home. I want to know, are we going to keep seeing this kind of chaos affecting travel? Because 
because it's been a while and everyone was getting excited to get back into travelling overseas, but it's not too exciting when you're stuck. We're getting some messages in now. Someone says, my friend just got stranded in Queenstown NZ with Jetstar cancelling the flight, making her stay an extra night, then flying her to Christchurch to cancel the flight back to Melbourne again. She had to stay two extra nights in NZ because of the Jetstar cancellations. Well, let's talk to an expert now, someone who knows a bit about this stuff. Angus Kidman is a travel writer, editor-in-chief at Finder, and he really knows his way around an airport. G'day, Angus. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Look, it feels like when you book a trip now, you're always factoring in this really high chance that it's going to be thrown into chaos, that it's going to be a mess. Your flights will be cancelled. You'll get stranded. When is all this going to get sorted, do you think? Unfortunately, I think we're looking at a lot more of this. We've already had some airlines cut back the number of flights they're running right through until March next year, and that's a pretty clear signal that the industry doesn't think it's going to have its act together to run a full schedule of services up until that time. So honestly, I feel like we could be looking at at least another year of this before we start feeling like when you get on a flight, you can confidently feel like you're going to come back on the service you booked at the time you expected. And I mean, we're seeing Qantas Jetstar in the headline recently for all the wrong reasons, but is this impacting a lot of other airlines as well? Yes, we've seen the same patterns happening across the board. We've seen this all across Europe right across the summer. There were loads and loads of delays, loads and loads of cancellations, and yeah, Airlines around the world all have the same problem. Having not had staff on board during the pandemic, a lot of the staff haven't come back because airlines are not necessarily the most generous employers, and we've seen a lot of evidence that about that this week. So I think that all contributes to it because it makes it harder to deal with when things go wrong. If you haven't got those people on the ground, you can't get things sorted out. That leads to flight cancellations. It also leads to all the communication problems when people just don't know what's happening and they, they get contradictory information and they get no information. A lot of that comes down to not having the right people to deal with the issues when they do arise. We've got so many more messages coming through. Someone says, Jetstar doing what they do best, sale after sale for cash flow, overbooked, understaffed and a customer service waiver, so it's not their problem. Consumer watchdogs step up. Another person, Ryan, says, a bunch of angry Aussies stuck in one small building with cheap alcohol. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, I'm wondering, um, when we're talking about this, Angus, travelling can be frustrating and stressful at the best of times. Are we seeing all these delays and cancellations leading to more disruptive behaviour at airports and on planes? I mean, I don't know whether anecdotally that's what you're hearing. I'm seeing a little bit of that. To be honest, I was expecting to see a bit more. Like, you know, you do think that people are going to go, oh, hang on, you know, is this reasonable? Yeah, ultimately, you know, the person in the airport, it's probably not their fault that the cancellation has happened. That decision has been made somewhere else and I would hope that people can sort of be tolerant and not take it out on them. We haven't seen lots of that footage emerge, but the longer it goes on, the bigger the chance that we are going to start suddenly seeing TikTok flooded with angry passengers at airports. It seems likely we're going to see more of that. Yeah, you can imagine. I'm wondering what the rules are in terms of refunds and stuff like that. Does it really depend on the ticket you've bought and is that something people should be really thinking carefully about when they're making their travel plans? Uh, it can depend the t- it can depend on the ticket, but actually any ticket, even the most expensive, will generally have conditions that say, we don't guarantee that we'll fly you on a specific time or a specific date. That's actually baked into pretty much every airline's boilerplate text. So um, while, yeah, realistically, you should be able to have some expectation of that, it's really not in there, so that becomes a tricky ground for complaint. And as long as the airline doesn't actually cancel a flight and they're trying to rebook you, 
you have problems with insurance because they'll go, look, until the airline said we're not doing it, we may not refund you. And we heard some examples of that earlier. So insurance can definitely help with this, but it's not a panacea and you've got to read the conditions for that as well. Right. So is there any like, is there any really important advice that you think that people should be thinking about before they're booking these big trips? Uh, I still would get travel insurance because it can help deal with those costs, especially if you have to pay for extra accommodation. But you really do need to look in detail and make sure that they say they will cover additional expenses relation to cancellation, not just maybe the cost of buying a new ticket, but also the cost of that accommodation, which in some places, like in Queenstown, that's going to be a really expensive prospect. At least in Bali, accommodation is relatively cheap. Um, so I think you really, yeah, you want to look at having that, but I also, I would, I would resist right now booking a holiday where you think you're going to get home on Sunday and go to work on Monday. I think there's enough uncertainty that I would have at least a couple of days float in there. And that's a bit grim in terms of using up your holidays, but I think it's realistic right now. Yeah, that's good advice. We've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, without a travel agent, you're on your own. I'm a professional travel agent with years of experience. People now book online and believe we're useless until stuff like this happens. Another person, Andy, says, risky going travelling. Many things can go wrong. I'm wondering, Angus, what about airfares? People might be interested in this as well. Price is pretty steep at the moment for any anyone looking to head overseas, but even domestically. Like, I caught a few domestic flights um, over the past few weeks and very, very steep. Are they up for good or are we expecting some um, changes to the price in the near future? Again, I think up for good, certainly for the rest of this year. Fuel prices are staying up and that's something that airlines can't control. So I, I don't think we're going to see a massive surge of dirt cheap flights anytime soon. We still see flight sales going around, but the, most of the ones I'm seeing now, they're looking at March, April next year already. So realistically, air travel is going to be on the up rather than on the down sort of for the foreseeable next 12 months. For as far out as you can book an airline ticket, I don't see a lot of them getting cheaper. Right, very interesting. Well, we appreciate your advice and all of your knowledge on this. Travel writer Angus Kidman, thank you so much for coming on Hack. No worries. And we've got some more messages coming through. Somebody says, time to talk about airlines having to be held to the same refund and reimbursement standards and laws that everyone else is held to. Another person says, we booked flights back in June for October travel to Bali. Already changed four times. We ended up cancelling because it seemed really sketchy. Change travel days, times, location of travel, everything. And another person says, don't travel abroad support the Australian economy and travel at home, live your best life here and create a future for your children. All right, that's a very interesting point, very fair point to end on. Hack. It's the difference between someone saying, hey, there was a little polyp and I've cut that out or finding out a situation that maybe there isn't any options for. On Triple J. You know, there's a whole heap of us walking around now with maybe a higher chance of things like cancer and heart disease, but we don't know it. Our DNA can tell us a lot about how our lives might play out, but if you could find out if you're at risk, would you want to? Because a world-first study has been launched in Australia focusing on young people. With an easy saliva test, 10,000 people are being offered free DNA testing to pinpoint increased risks of some diseases. And it could see Australia ultimately leading the way in this kind of preventative screening process. It's really cool stuff, and I wanted to find out a bit more about it. So with us is Jane Tiller from Monash University. She's co-leading this project. Hey, Jane, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. How exactly does this testing work? So it's a saliva test, and then what sorts of things are you testing for? 
So we're looking at 10 different genes across three conditions that fall into a category known as medically actionable conditions. That means there might be a high risk in your genetics, but there's something you can do about it to either prevent the disease or catch it and treat it early. So the 10 genes are across the conditions of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, the BRCA1 and 2 genes that some people have heard about, also Lynch syndrome, which leads to a high risk of colorectal cancer and some gynecological cancers, and also familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, that's a big word for genetic high cholesterol that can lead to early heart attacks. Okay, so really important stuff that you're testing for that I imagine could impact people if they knew about that stuff. We've got people texting in already. Someone says, I'd love to know my risks. I reckon it might help with my hypochondria. Another person says, as someone with two adopted parents, I'm all for DNA screening. I'm wondering, is this the kind of thing that we can expect to be just part of healthcare in the decades ahead, Jane? Is that what it's looking like? Certainly, there's a lot of opportunities coming up with genetic testing and uh, we want to make sure that this is implemented in a responsible way. But there are huge opportunities for finding out about risk. Like you said, many people are walking around with this risky DNA that don't know about it, don't know that they have the risk don't know that there are steps that they can take to uh, be empowered to take preventative steps and reduce that risk. So we would like this to be offered through a, a screening program that's funded by the government in the future, something that's available to everybody. Uh, of course, you don't include every single genetic change that you know about, but these are things that people can change from a young age. Yeah, I'm wondering, does knowing if you're at risk make a big difference? Because there are probably heaps of people listening now thinking, you know what, I'd actually rather not know. Like I've just seen someone message in and say, no way, I'd take this test. I'd be too anxious about getting sick with whatever it says I have even a 50% chance of getting. How important like, can it be to know that you are at risk? Is there much you can do to change the risk? For the conditions that we're looking at, we've chosen them because they are high risk and also have very high preventive potential. So not everybody wants to know and we understand that not everybody would partake in a a type of screening program like this, but uh, someone with a BRCA1 or 2 variant has a 70% risk of developing breast cancer in their lifetime. Now, if they know that they have that variant, they can go into high risk screening clinics, they can have MRIs from a younger age more frequently to catch a cancer early. Uh, Some people will consider surgery to remove their breasts or ovaries to really minimise that risk. People with Lynch syndrome can have yearly colonoscopy to look for polyps and remove them before they develop into cancer. So absolutely some people would rather not know, but it might be the difference between finding out all of a sudden that you have cancer versus going through screening yearly, uh, doing some checks and, and keeping on top of it. On the text line, Melissa in Melbourne says, DNA testing to see if you're prone to health issues, wouldn't that just be a reason for insurance companies to raise your premiums or are you going to have to report on it um, for a home loan? I think that that info will be used for the wrong reasons by the greedy in this society. What what will happen to the information that's collected, Jane, in, in this testing? Mm, So we don't give the information to third parties without the consent of the participants. So, you know, we store it very securely at Monash University. Uh, But that person is right. Health insurance in Australia is protected against genetic discrimination, but life insurers are allowed to use genetic information. That's something that we are calling on the Australian government to fix. It's a, a concern for people who are being involved in genetic research. We tell people about this before they sign up as part of the consent process 
But if they're concerned about their life insurance situation, they might like to go and look at that and sort out their insurance before they have a test. Once you have life insurance in place, you don't need to go back and tell an insurer about a genetic test, but you might have to tell them when you apply. Right. Okay. Well, that's important information for people to know. This screening program is limited to 10,000 spots. How do you choose who's going to be able to take part? It's a good question. We have had a huge amount of interest and on the first day since launching, uh, we had about 10,000 people express their interest. Oh, wow. But we are still encouraging people to sign up. They can go to dnascreen.monash.edu and register their interest. It's a, a randomised selection across different categories. So we're really, really looking for a representative sample of people across Australia in regional areas as well as cities, males and females and people with different diverse backgrounds as well. So we really want to demonstrate to the government the strong level of interest there is from young people in having this kind of preventative screening. And just quickly, Jane, we've got 30 seconds left, but I'm wondering what you're hoping to get out of all of this. We really want to make this information available to people, but we also want to pilot this as a preventive DNA screening program. We want to see what works and what doesn't work. And eventually, we, like I said, we'd like the government to pick this up and offer this as a screening program across Australia to all adults. Well, it could, you know, happen and then Australia could be a world leader in this. Who knows? But it's really interesting to find out the background. Jane Tiller from Monash University, appreciate your time. Where can people learn more, by the way? dnascreen.monash.edu has all the information. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to Jane Tiller from Monash University and a big thanks to everyone who's commented, messaged in with all of your feedback on the new British PM, barley flight chaos that's going down and, of course, that DNA preventative screening that we were just talking about. Such interesting work that's happening. That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.